Well, hello and welcome to What's Brewing, CISFA. What's Brewing, CISFA is a podcast produced for the California Community College's Student Financial Aid Administrators Association. I'm your host, Dennis Schrader. I serve as the 2021-2022 CISFA past president. As this episode is being recorded in a day full of meetings, Dana won't be joining us, but she'll be back with us on the Friday show. So let's get this one going. And welcome to another episode of What's Brewing, Sisva. Let's start this show off with our first cups, everyone. I'm not sure what that cup would be. But earlier today, it was a little hazelnut coffee. Followed by a little pure leaf raspberry tea so probably a little more caffeine than i need but that'll just get us through the show so we've got a day full of news there's a variety of things from a variety of sources so let's kick this off with some stuff from our friends at the california student aid commission just put out last week or maybe over the weekend really was an operations memo, number 31 for the year, about Cal Grant Award Disbursement and Census Date. And so this is information regarding the general Cal Grant Award Disbursement timeline as it relates to institutions and their census dates. So as they remind us, unless otherwise stated in our institutional refund policy, the census date, you know, commonly referred to as our freeze date or add drop date establishes enrollment status for the payment reporting purposes. So basically what it is, most colleges, usually a couple weeks into the semester or so, have what we call our freeze date or add drop date. And basically at that point, that's the day we use for enrollment purposes for things like Cal Grant and such. Things that happen thereafter would not be taken into account. So, you know, a student who might drop a class early on doesn't get overpaid. A student that adds classes or later, though, can't consider those classes either, though. So there's pluses and minuses to this. But in a sense, an institution does have to have some kind of way of knowing what was the enrollment status for that student for that semester for payment purposes. So this is just kind of a reminder to schools about that uh, and how it pertains to Cal Grant. So read up on the men on the operations memo when you have time. We'll have a link in the show notes and keep that handy. Not that there's anything really new, as this is referenced in the Cal Grant handbook. Not a whole lot of updates made to that recently, but keep it handy in case questions come up. One other ops memo, number 32 for the year, just came out yesterday on the 27th of September. So this one is just announcing the opening of the 2022-23 college cost estimate screen in web grants. And so this is a part in the system where institutions need to provide information about estimated costs for the coming school year to the commission. 
So, as it says, says here, the commission anticipates processing preliminary Cal Grant awards for the coming school year, 2022-23, sometime in November. As such, they really need us to get that college cost estimate screen updated and completed by October 29. So this would be done by overriding, you know, pre-populated fields that have the information from your last year and entering in new updated figures for the coming year. And really what they want to know, and it helps them, is like what's our estimated cost of tuition and fees, room and board, the breakdowns of how it's different maybe for students living on campus or off campus or those living with parents. And it says, you know, estimated expenses. So it doesn't have to be exactly set in stone. So, but it does help them because, you know, one of the things they do look at is that in comparison to the expected family contribution and some other things is whether or not a student will be eligible for Cal Grant, not just on GPA and all, but will they be eligible based on financial need? The last note in this operations memo is just a reminder regarding high school graduation verification. So if an institution opts out of the verification process on the college cost estimate screen, students coming to campus will not be required to verify their high school graduation date. So this is just an option might be used by institutions. Um, <clears throat> again, students can be self-certifying in other ways, but just something to keep in mind on this ops memo. I'll give you links to both of them separately in my show notes. Now, something else, and this just hit the news very recently um, in a long email I got uh, from somebody. Uh, but as you know, here in California, lots of legislature gets passed all the time. So one of these was a Senate bill, number 169, just passed last week. And in a sense, as they call it, it's a post-secondary education trailer bill. And what that really means is there were some bills passed last year uh, in their regular cycle about post-secondary education you know, colleges, universities, etc. You know, things that handle or, or surround themselves around the UC system, the Cal State system, the community college system, the California Student Aid Commission and such. Um, but this trailer bill, in a sense, picks up from there and really takes into account some things that had to be fixed in that prior set of bill or bills passed in the last year. The one thing that we were looking for was help from the state to address uh, selective service. Because as we talked about on prior shows, in the olden days, which was really a little over a year ago, when you did the FAFSA form, or our DREAMers did the California DREAM Act application form, one of the requirements for eligibility was that a Male students between 18 and 25 who had to be registered with Selective Service had to be registered with Selective Service. Now, the FAFSA's process is easy enough. And when the federal government over the summer decided 
that's no longer going to be a requirement for the coming school year. I should say this school year. So it was a very late decision. They could just, in a sense, tell us to stop worrying about it. It's a federal requirement on a federal form. Well, for our dreamers who do the California Dream Act application, the way the law was written that created that application and process had mentioned stuff about selective service and all the requirements of the federal form in a way that it wasn't just a case that our California Student Aid Commission people who take care of the California Dream Act form could just wipe it off the books. Instead, it's part of the law. So the part here, which is good, is it says here, the bill would remove the requirement to provide agencies with info. I'm sorry, that's the wrong line here. Here's the part. Existing federal law, the Military Selective Service Act, requires males, you know, to be registered and all. And so, um, and that because of that, this bill waives any regulations or formal policy to verify that registration for applicants of Cal grants. And so that covers our people applying for federal aid through the FAFSA who could get Cal grants, and they also fall under this. And, of course, our DREAMers who do the DREAM Act form specifically for Cal grant. So we've taken care of that one problem for the coming year. Initially, I'll say... In working with our partners at the Student Aid Commission, because of the way legislation normally works, we were expecting this might not get done until January, and thus we could have some students hanging out there in limbo, getting their federal aid, not getting Cal Grant. But they fixed it. Thank goodness for them. Something else on the state front, this was an article out of the LA Times, that the state announces charges in alleged student loan debt relief scam of more than 19,000 victims. So California Attorney General Rob Bonta on Tuesday announced, this would be over a week ago, charges in an alleged multi-million dollar student loan debt relief scam that prosecutors say stole from more than 19,000 victims in less than three years. So the leader of the scam apparently owned a network of debt relief businesses based in Orange County that operated call centers promising to reduce or eliminate federal student loan debt. <clears throat> Prosecutors have accused this person, as well as four call center managers and two sales agents, of stealing more than $6.1 million from victims, including 3,000 who lived in California. So an Orange County grand jury just this month, indicted this person as well as co-defendants. And there's a long list of names here. On counts including grand theft by false pretenses, unauthorized use of personal identifying info, and authorized and unauthorized computer access and fraud. So this person faces special allegations for money laundering totally more than $2.5 million in aggravated white-collar crime. So, very interesting. This is one of those stories that kind of makes its way around because you'll see the ads on TV or you'll get calls or people will find out through credit reporting that maybe you're behind on your student loans. 
And if so, they come after you, looking to offer you easy ways out. It's not always easy when you're delinquent on payments or actually behind on payments. And thus, they offer you these easy ways out to eliminate, completely get rid of, pay off your student loans on pennies on the dollars, etc. And so here it says here, for example, each victim was either paid or was scheduled to pay the call center's upfront fees and monthly fees of more than $1,000 for their services. Most mistakenly thought the payments were going towards their student loan debt, causing many of them to stop making their monthly payments and thus making even more trouble down the line. So very interesting article. It is the LA Times. Hopefully you can get it to it uh, without having to pay for it, just so you can read up on what not to do. But what should you do? Take a musical break when you need to and come back for the rest of the show. And just like that, guess what, everybody? It's time for a second cup. Uh, that music, I really wanted to fade it out a little nicer, but I guess my mixer is just not quite that good. On to the next article. This was an interesting one from NASFA and reporting. Apparently here, a new report from the Government Accountability Office, or GAO, has found that the Office of Federal Student Aid, or FSA, has not sufficiently adjusted its staffing levels to account for its growing portfolio. So it says here, for example, while the number of student loan borrowers, they grew by 150% from fiscal year 2010 to 2019, so about a 10-year span there, FSA's staffing only increased by 6%, and by fiscal year 2020, the agency was unable to complete about 20% of its designated workload. So in creating its report, the GAO interviewed FSA officials who developed staffing policies and managed the staffing process and conducted two group interviews um, with human capital staff who implement staffing policies. So according to FSA officials, prior to 2020, fiscal year 2020, the agency had not conducted a formal review. So if it says here, you know, such a review could determine FSA's ability to respond to an increasing workload with other challenges and identify staffing needs and skills gaps. So it's an interesting thing. I'll give you a link to the NASFA article that has a link directly to the GAO report. So this is one of those problems, even in government, where, you know, you start to grow big. And in the case of student loan borrowing, that's a big portfolio to handle. Um, they weren't probably properly staffed up to handle it. Nothing against our friends at FSA. This is the reality, though, just like at schools, when you don't have enough staff. But what have they been doing really well? Well, they've been keeping up on getting that student aid handbook, the federal student aid handbook that all of us professionals use, up to date. So just released last week was volume six, the part that covers the campus-based programs. So that chapter is now available in a digital version, also available as a downloadable PDF. So I'll give you the link to the part on the FSA Partner Connect page that gets you to B2 
being able to download that chapter. And yes, the 2021-22 school year has started. You know, we've been going at it since fall. We can even consider summer. And not the whole handbook is ready yet. But it's kind of the normal process for releasing of the handbook chapters. The last couple news items I have here are kind of more long pieces here. One from NASA and a couple from inside higher ed. First one was uh, writing up on a story here called Instead of Tuition-Free Community College, Paper Calls Out Outcome-Based Funding. So as you know, Congress and others are looking at, you know, making community college tuition free for everyone. And there's a lot of things to that. In fact, I think one of my other articles here and the next one will talk about this. But in a recently published paper outlining a better alternative to free community college, Preston Cooper, a research fellow at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, also known as FREOP, F-R-E-O-P-P, he argues the federal government should funnel money to community colleges that ensure students have positive outcomes. So he points to the fact that due to the availability of federal, state, and institutional aid, tuition at community colleges is already relatively inexpensive with only about one in five students borrowing to attend. And therefore, as quoted, a blanket federal subsidy with little regard for quality differences between institutions and programs, makes little sense. Sounds like a very interesting paper. And so it's not a bad idea to maybe see what the other options are out there because, you know, different ways to make community college free, you know, involve a lot of different things, a lot of moving parts, a lot of buy-in from states in order to make it free too. We're lucky here in community colleges in California in a sense that our class is only our $46 per unit. Across the U.S., it's probably closer to between $100 and $200 per unit, even for their in-state residents. So what schools get for an investment as far as other funding varies quite a bit from you know state to state, where whether or not that burden is put on students intuition, or in a sense, on the taxpayers in direct subsidy to the schools. But this leads into my other article that's somewhat related. From Inside Higher Ed, and interestingly enough, the picture they have on their online article is Los Angeles City College, one of our California community colleges here. So, The article is, states will need to pony up for Biden's free college plan. And the lead-off line kind of covers it. If they want to cash in on Democrats' free community college plan, some states will need to increase funding for higher ed by more than 40%. So the Democrat plan, called America's College Promise, is planned to provide tuition for all community college students, and it could allow more than 9 million students to pursue an associate degree for free. But now states, as says here, may have to really come up with some money. So the analysis done here by the State Higher Ed Executive Officers Association, 
found that states will, on average, need to increase investment in higher ed by 12%, or an average of only $387 per student in order to opt opt into the program. Uh, 21 states, though, have average tuition figures above the national median, meaning those states will need to pay up until the difference reaches zero in this formula, this special formula to get to getting federal dollars. So as many as 12 states would need to increase funding by more than 15% before the coming 2023-24 academic year to be eligible. And seven states will need to up their funding by more than 25%. Here's the interesting one. Alaska, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, and South Dakota would look at increases of over 40%. Vermont is an interesting one here. Um, According to this, to be eligible for the federal aid funding would need to increase increase their higher ed funding by 142%. So there's certainly some outliers there. And it's an interesting report because free tuition sounds good on the outside, but there's the details behind it as far as how does that work with getting federal dollars to states who charge different prices for their community colleges, much different ones. And also how much are they investing per student on average? So I'll give you a link to this article at Inside Higher Ed. It's definitely interesting. Our last one. I have this one in here just because it's related to what we're doing right this second. And it's uh, under the career advice section of Inside Higher Ed. It's called, It's Time for Academe to Take Podcasting Seriously. The lead line after that, it offers exciting new ways to learn, create, and disseminate research, writes 11 scholars who offer concrete ideas for how to harness it as a productive tool for teaching and scholarship. So I guess I found it kind of interesting here, you know, talking about podcasting as pedagogy, you know, part of the whole teaching theme, the whole way it's done. Um, Assigning scholarly podcasts as primary material instead of or alongside text in humanities courses. You know, think of all the, uh, wonderful things on humanities uh, that's probably already out there being broadcast in a sense on podcasts. You know, replacing individual written assignments with team-based podcast projects that mix written and audio components. And just a whole lot of other ideas. So, you know, it's a real nice article. Uh, some great people here were involved from Stanford, NYU, Columbia, uh, an opinion audio uh, from a uh, guy in New York Times and such, but, uh, you know, I guess uh, uh, some really great ideas here. Um, again, I, more podcasts, more, all the better. You know, we want to cover the gamut of things out there. We've got our little niche. Other than NASA and their off-the-cuff, I can't think of many others on financial aid at this point. Maybe we'll grow the field this way. But talking about growing, it's time for our news to stop growing so that we can move on to our last part of the show. And just like that, to move the show along, we're going to move ourselves right into our last sip segment. And say, I don't really have a lot of I dare you to's. This would be the time me and Dana would exchange those. 
other than just because I'm getting shorted on lunch today because I have too many meetings, the one thing I would suggest, whether you're afraid to look at it or not, is read the uh, labels on your granola or fruit bars or your nut bars and stuff like that, your trail mix, and see what's in it. You know, I think it's one of those things some of the commercials play up, at least by those companies that, uh, you know, extend to you that, you know, their stuff is better than everyone else's. It doesn't have the high fructose syrup, et cetera, et cetera. You know, just to see what you're eating and what those balances are of, you know, sugars and carbs, protein. Sodium is a big one. Maybe not so much in bar form, but just in general in food. You know, knowing what you're eating will really help you down the line to understand better. But that's all I really have for a little bit of a I dare you to. We've had a little bit of news today, but this is about all that we have time for today. We'll have a great episode coming up on Friday, I'm sure. So I do want to thank everyone for joining us today on the What's Brewing Seeds for Show. And if you have something to say or you have topics you want us to discuss, email us at wbcsfa at gmail.com. Remember, for this and all What's Brewing Seeds for Podcasts, Find us on Google Podcasts, your Apple Podcasts app, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the TuneIn app on your Amazon Echo by using Alexa. What's Brewing Seaswa is a production of Studio 1051, a creative collaboration of me and Dana Yarbrough. This has been episode number 127, recorded Tuesday, September 28th, 2021. Have a great day. And have a great week.